I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. The show is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find out more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. You can also find us on Facebook under Heterodox Academy and on Twitter at HDX Academy. My guest today is Arthur Sakamoto. I'm excited to talk to him because his work was very informative when I was writing the first journal article I ever published. It was an article I published around 2014 about whether people can accurately estimate Asian American household income. Arthur is a professor of sociology at Texas A&M. Prior to working there, he worked at the University of Texas, Austin. He was there from 1989 to 2013. He specializes in economic sociology and class inequality. He's published a number of papers on Asian Americans and their socioeconomic attainments, and papers about whether Asian Americans are victims of discrimination in the labor market. His work suggests that Asian American men and white men have parity in the labor market. As you'll hear in this interview, this work is controversial because it breaks the paradigm that most sociologists use. One interesting thing is that Arthur also talks about the consequences for your career if you try to publish work that challenges the conventional paradigm. So here is Arthur Sakamoto. I'd like to begin by talking about the majority-minority paradigm. In a lot of your work, you've spent some time criticizing that paradigm. Uh, can you describe this paradigm for our listeners? As a paradigm, it's really a, a general approach and not just one set theory. But the basic perspective is emphasizing that whites as a group, on average, have higher incomes than minorities, at least on average. And so this uh, differential in favor of whites is what they're trying to focus on and understand. And the basic view is that the reason why whites have higher incomes than minorities on average is because whites have greater power. They exploit minorities through discrimination. And if that discrimination went away, then the average incomes of whites and minorities would be the same. So uh, it's focusing on sort of this white privilege and white power sense that whites are advantaged in society uh, and minorities are disadvantaged. As I said, there's, you know, different people working on different aspects of this approach, but there's no one set theory, but that's that's the general view. And you've seen this paradigm predominate in sociology? Uh, yes, it, it has. And um, I, I guess uh, William J. Wilson wrote a book in 1978 called uh, The Declining Significance of Race, where he um, looked through the entire history of African-Americans and argued that in the post-civil rights era, the rising significance of class inequalities um, were becoming more predominant. Um, and so the paradigm was beginning to shift sort of after the civil rights era. But what happened, there was a, a sort of a backlash on Wilson's famous book. And so since the 1990s, uh, it's almost become virtually taboo in sociology to even use the phrase, the declining significance of race. And so since Wilson's book, uh, much of the field of sociology of racial and ethnic relations has been sort of implicitly rejecting uh, Wilson's thesis that in the modern post-civil rights era, class inequality are more important than racial discrimination. And so that's been the focus really for the past 25 years in, in this field. 
And what has made you skeptical of this paradigm? Well, uh, a number of things. Um, from my own uh, background as a, as a Japanese American, for example, uh, for the most part, uh, contemporary Asian Americans don't really fit this paradigm very well. And for a variety of reasons, since there's different Asian groups, but sort of simply put, Asian Americans have higher education and higher incomes than white, at least on average. Now, if you go back before the civil rights era and look at some of that history and some of those data, as I've done in my own work, um, Asian Americans um, did face discrimination um, that was significant in that prior era. But since that time, we see Asian Americans are, for the most part, um, exceeding whites in terms of educational attainment and incomes, uh, so much so that um, if you look at some of the elite universities, they are grossly overrepresented. When one out of 20 people in America is Asian, you might find uh, what one out of three people at Stanford being Asian American. So uh, it's probably the case that this majority-minority majority, majority paradigm uh, doesn't fit contemporary Asian Americans very well. So that's one reason why. I I've become skeptical of the paradigm because I've always been interested in studying Asian Americans, and I've found that uh, American sociology has not shared my enthusiasm. It's kind of ironic to me that you know Japanese Americans have had lower poverty rates than whites for the past half century, have had higher education for the past century, have had greater probability of obtaining white-collar and professional jobs for decades. And yet, I challenge you to find a single textbook in race and ethnicity in America which describes any of that. I mean, we get endless detail about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, but it's as if everything else that Japanese Americans have done has been obliterated from the field of sociology because of this focus on um, the majority-minority paradigm. So that's another reason why uh, I've sort of been critical of this is because it's prevented me from studying uh, Asian Americans in terms of their class characteristics. So, do you know other Asian American sociologists who are skeptical of this paradigm as well? I think uh, many are, but um, uh, you know, there's a few things going on there. Um, many Asian Americans and Asian sociologists don't necessarily work in the field of race and ethnicity, so they aren't really familiar with it that much and don't want to comment on it. Um, another issue is that um, I, I think people uh, are afraid to critique this kind of paradigm because it is so um, ideologically popular. And um, privately, um, some people have told me that I'm that I'm quote suicidal for um, for citing William J. Wilson and for recently um, I wrote a, a review where I um, reaffirmed the importance of the book. Um, people realize that the popularity of that paradigm means that um, there's very few professional rewards for um, not following this conventional wisdom. And so a lot of Asian American sociologists are reluctant to sort of to openly critique it, they may do so privately, but they don't want to get involved because they feel that it would hurt their career. And I, um, I, I've heard of debates about, you know, why is sociology so liberal? And there's some debates, well, it's selectivity. Those are the people that are interested in going to sociology. You know, I, I don't know exactly, but my perception and um, has been that within the field of sociology, the rewards for people who don't conform to the conventional wisdom are, are, are slim. And I've known good sociologists doing good research who did not get tenure because their work didn't fit into the paradigm very well. I mean, I, I'll be frank with you that I've been submitting papers to the American Sociological Review on Asian Americans for the past 25 years. And apparently, 
there's no data good enough for the American Sociological Review to convince those reviewers that Asian Americans have reached parity with respect to whites. I mean, every single one gets rejected for what happens is when the paper doesn't conform to the conventional wisdom, then the methodological standards are raised. But if you argue that there's discrimination against Asians, then the methodological standards are relaxed. And I mean, I hate to admit it, but I mean, I do have a paper in 2010 American Sociological Review um, where we submitted the paper and it was a new kind of analysis because we had data on STEM majors and Asians are concentrated in STEM relative to whites. STEMs have higher incomes. No one had studied this systematically before, so it was new contribution. And we found that controlling for STEM, uh, there still wasn't much difference between whites and Asians. The native-born Asians made the same as, as whites when you control for that. And basically, the review process forced us to not reach that conclusion. We had to conclude that Asians face discrimination. And as a senior author, I myself would not do that. But my co-author was a junior uh, person, and getting this paper in the American Sociological Review would get him tenure. And so for the sake of my co-author, who was a junior sociologist, I felt that it wasn't appropriate for me to push back and get the paper rejected because I didn't conform to the dictates of the review process. And if you read that paper carefully, and I'm afraid there's a lot of people in sociology that don't read very carefully anymore, um, present company excluded, um, the paper is almost, the, the abstract doesn't even fit the conclusion. It's kind of like we wiggled around the review process and said, okay, okay, you want to see discrimination? Here it is. And then we discussed why you shouldn't control for region because if native-born Asian Americans are disproportionately living in California, and if Californians have this high propensity to live in California because they love California, they're willing to give up 8% higher wages to live in California. So we discussed all that, but we didn't put it into the abstract. And so it's this weird case where... Uh, we were forced to come up with results to fit the majority-minority paradigm. Now, I've submitted other papers, and, you know, they're rejected because, um, you know, for this or that methodological reason. And then I see other papers in American Sociology Review that are no better, in many cases worse, and they're being published. So um, we, we see that a lot for African Americans. Um, virtually no one studies, no one controls for whether or not you have a STEM degree. I mean, no one controls for the quality of schooling. No one controls for uh, grades or cognitive skills in ASR. And that's acceptable. But when you try to do it for Asians, then they say, well, but this data isn't appropriate. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of Asian American sociologists who are skeptical of the paradigm, but they learn that uh, the rewards go to people who... Um, promote this conventional wisdom because it is very powerful. I, I could give you uh, some personal stories, of just interactions with people. Um, I mean, talk about microaggression. I mean, I have had people, if I'm talking in a group at, at, at the ASA and they just leave because I showed up, they refuse to be in the same I mean, hallway with me. I mean, I presented a paper on the claim sense of race. The presider was an African-American. She refused to look at me, but he he asked me some statistical questions. I mean, his questions didn't change the findings. I mean, I'm happy to talk to him, but it was very weird to be questioned by someone who 
hated me so much that he wouldn't look at me in the face. I mean, I, I could give you other stories where, um, you know, it's, um, I think people are exaggerating when I read these reviews that say, okay, we're rejecting it purely on scientific and technical grounds. Asian Americans and I think other sociologists realize that to get ahead in the field, um, you really have to conform to a narrow set of acceptable views. And um, at, at this point in time, the majority minority paradigm is really dominant. Well, there's a new book by it's edited by Lee Jessam and Jarrett Crawford. It's called The Politics of Social Psychology. And there are at least two chapters in that book that talk about experiences that are very similar to yours. For example, there's a chapter by Cece and Williams about discrimination against men in a certain category of STEM, STEM faculty, basically high achieving STEM faculty. And they talk about how they had to meet standards far higher than those that the typical authors have to meet in order to get that article published. So that situation is, as far as I can tell, is not unique. Uh, I'll be interested to, to, to read that reference. And um, let me say, I've read a lot of your work and find it refreshing in that it really is open to considering um, you know, these kinds of issues. I mean, I hope I'm not exaggerating my own personal experiences, but uh, I, I do believe that there is an ideological proclivity towards majority-minority paradigm. And the other reason why I'm skeptical of the paradigm is, in my original background is really in class stratification and inequality, labor market institutions and wage distributions. I've have a background in economics and a lot of my work is economic sociology. I don't come at race and ethnicity purely as someone who specializes only in looking at racial differences because uh, a lot of class characteristics can account for group differences even in the absence of any kind of overt uh, discrimination. And so um, one of the additional problems I find for contemporary sociology is just a real excessive degree of kind of intellectual fragmentation that people only study their one little thing. And, you know, it's kind of like product differentiation in, in the consumer world. I mean, my Coca-Cola is a real thing. And so your Coca-Cola can't compete with mine. And you know, that's not productive as, as sociologists. We're supposed to be integrating these different influences and variables together rather than narrowly um, having our own territory. So I, I do think the race and ethnic field has to incorporate more of the sociological literature on class inequality and stratification. So moving from old paradigms to new paradigms, can you propose a new paradigm to replace the majority minority paradigm? Well, uh, I think sociology now is coming back to grappling with the problem of trying to understand um, class inequalities and, and stratification you know, we've had this period since William J. Wilson where the emphasis has been on race and, and, and gender and other ascriptive uh, differentials. But um, I feel within the last few years, uh, there's been a renewed interest on, on class stratification. I, I don't think we have really a unified paradigm at this point, but um, just the general theme of uh, resources that children have provided by their parents is uh, important in understanding uh, how well people do 
in terms of the educational system and and getting into privileged um, career lines that ultimately result in you know income inequalities and socioeconomic stratification. So I think we're still grappling for uh, a new paradigm. It, it used to be very centered on sort of occupational differentials, but that has kind of been falling apart because we have so much inequality now uh, within occupations and you know who you work for and your employment relations are uh, are are very important and so i think we're moving towards uh, a new theory of of inequalities but uh it's going to need more uh, emphasis on stratification. Now, let me say, I have no ideological aversion to studying racial discrimination. I mean, I am confident and sure that there are acts of racism happening all the time. I mean, the objective measurement issue is how much of that accounts for total inequality in the distribution. So when I say that, you know, we're moving towards to more to understanding class inequalities, I mean, that does not mean that we can't think of, conceptualize, and objectively study um, discriminatory processes in, in one way or, or another. But um, we need to do so within sort of our old-fashioned conception of, of sociology as a social science, which, um, you know, it's not very glamorous, but I think we need to get back to. You teach a 300-level course on race and ethnicity at the University of Texas at Austin. When you broach this topic of the majority-minority paradigm and how we need a new paradigm, but it's unclear, how do you structure your course to explain this to students? Well, uh, I certainly talk about racial and ethnic um, inequalities in American history, including slavery and Jim Crow segregation that um, fit the majority-minority paradigm fairly well and really are sort of the origins and impetus for the development of that paradigm in the first place. So uh, I do uh, a lot of history, but um, at the same time, I um, you know, talk a lot about sort of the post-civil rights changes. And in particular, I uh, consider a lot of Asian American groups. And um, there are courses in race and ethnicity that barely mention Asian Americans. So uh, I, I have a combination of, of historical and, and comparative and sociological um, kind of uh, introductory materials that uh, take me plenty of time to get through. And so... Um, I think there's enough there for for everyone to find something that they um, find appealing, or and and they certainly are exposed to different ways of thinking. I mean, if you go back to sort of the 1860 census, for example, something I consider my course, uh, the majority of African American slaves were owned by really less than one percent of all the free white families in the South. The majority of free white families in the South, according to the 1860 census, did not actually own any slaves, and many did. But that you know, 40 percent who did uh, mostly owned a handful or a few or one slaves. The majority of slaves was owned by less than one percent. So even when you talk about um, the worst case scenario uh, of racial inequality, slavery, even there, there was a very prominent uh, class dimension that's often not uh, considered when we talk about uh, majority-minority paradigm as if all whites are equally benefiting from this racial privilege when it was argued by Wilson that the biological inferiority of blacks was an ideology that was fostered by uh, plantation owners in order to placate uh, the white working class, which ultimately drove down their wages. So if you look at 
painters or masonry workers or carpenters in the South in the antebellum period, uh, they made less money than comparable occupations in the North. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that, but according to Wilson, uh, one of the reasons was uh, white Southern workers uh, had less power, they didn't organize, and this ideology of racial superiority of whites helped to placate them and break up sort of class consciousness among those occupations. So, um, yeah, if you, you go back and look at um, sort of the history of race relations in detail, as I do in this course, uh, I mean, you can still find uh, the significance of, of class inequalities, in, even in the worst case scenario of slavery in the American South. I assume you have some Asian American students in your class, given where you are. Do you find that they tend to relate to your skepticism of the of the conventional paradigm? I I find that they they usually do, um, but um, they and and a lot of people are 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 more accepting of that approach or less critical of it in regard to African Americans. So Asian American students will say, well, maybe that doesn't apply to Asian Americans, but it probably applies to blacks, or it probably explains a lot of African-American history. So there's a lot of sort of sympathetic uh, view towards it. And so people are not so openly critical of it. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of courses don't really seriously talk about um, Asian-Americans systematically. And so you're not provided with evidence or consistent data to um, test this paradigm for for Asians, for example, uh, Eric Olin Wright, a former president of the American Sociological Association, has an introductory textbook, How America Really Works, and the whole chapter on race, there's not a single date, datum on Asians. I mean, it's all whites and blacks, and that's how America really works, there's no Asians. So it, it's not uncommon for these data to be deleted, and they'll talk about this or that particular instance of racism, and so um, you know, a, a Vietnamese American was murdered in the 1980s because they thought he was Japanese or something. Letters to Tien is a movie that talked about that. So they'll talk about sort of instances of discrimination, but they won't go over systematic statistics, which suggests that Asians are actually less likely to be murdered than, than other groups. So, um, you know, college students, uh, Asian Americans, um, they may be a little skeptical of it, but they're, they're open and receptive to it in, as, uh, as um, trying to understand uh, the, the experiences of other groups, uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, and, and, and possibly Latinos. Uh, and, you know, Asian-American history for the civil rights era, you can find uh, plenty of kind of dominant white power plays over, over Asians. I mean, that's not the whole story, but um, you certainly have plenty of that. So broadening the scope of this to all undergraduates, what do you think all undergraduates, regardless of their major, should know about race and ethnicity in America today? Well, um, I would say that you should consider the, the hypothesis or the possibility that um, you know, racism today in America is really not institutionalized. It's, it's deviance. And so we've moved from a period of institutionalized racism in the form of slavery and Jim Crow segregation to a period of sort of isolate racism where it's particular individuals with problems committing racist acts, but it's not built into the legal or political system of 
the social structure as a whole so that uh, you know, the notion that we have institutionalized or systemic racism, uh, I mean, I've heard that term quite a bit. Um, I, I'm very skeptical of that in terms of uh, the 21st century when you know an African-American was voted into two terms of presidency. So um, yes, there's this racism in the 21st century, but you know, there's there's murder, there's rape, there's armed robbery, there's all kinds of deviance that persist. And um, so I I would ask students to be uh, open-minded in in considering um, perspectives other than the majority minority paradigm, as as I do in, in my class. Now I don't force them to believe anything. I just go through the material. Well, do you have any closing thoughts? Well, you know, if you look back at you know to the colonial America. Uh, since the founding fathers and the establishment of American society, um, you know, at that point in time, it was incredibly uh, modern in the sense of embracing people of all different ethnic, religious, and, and racial backgrounds. Now, a notable exception is, is slavery, and, and that's an important exception that needs to be uh, recognized and, and dealt with. But at least the seeds for multiculturalism were sown really back in in a revolution where people just cared about, you know, are you on the side of the Americans or not? And so if you go back to that history, uh, America has really been um, sort of on the forefront of promoting more open race relations. Um, you know, I've lived in Japan a little bit and I visit Japan and I have Japanese relatives and go over there. I mean, there's a lot of countries in the world that people don't have the same sort of attitudes uh, about uh, intermarriage and about minority groups that, that we do here in America. And, um, and so I would, um, you know, I, I would ask, you know, everyone to, to, you know, think more broadly and, and internationally about how we're assessing our society. Okay. Yeah, having lived abroad myself, having lived in both Saudi Arabia and India, and being from an Indian family, I'm familiar with how there's, uh, for example, in Saudi Arabia, there's really is institutionalized discrimination against non-Saudi Arabs and institutionalized discrimination against laborers, essentially. So I think the perspective you have does depend to some degree on whether you've traveled abroad and seen racism and discrimination in other countries. And, you know, uh, I mean, what you just said is, is fascinating. And I, I, I believe you, but I mean, it just, the fact that Americans are so concerned with racism is perfectly consistent with our traditions of, of not, not wanting to, to go there. And so the fact that we have such low tolerance for it, it is itself it speaks of, you know, um, a concern for it. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. All right, great. Well, thanks for having me on. It was fun.